Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate that. Share that with your friends. Do subscribe. It's a different show, an important show, uh, and a unique show. The first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And certainly enough conversations have to happen there today and as we move forward and talk about what happened in the past and talk about how we can acknowledge it in the future. So we had a couple guests on that were significant to us in terms of doing just that. Lori Campbell is an intergenerational survivor of the Indian residential school system. Her grandmother went to a residential school and she was taken from her birth parents and pushed into a white family at the age of 14 months. She talks about that in harrowing detail on the show today. Later in the podcast, you'll hear from Stephanie Scott, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation's executive director, why we needed this day, why it may have been overdue, and what's the significance of it going forward. Bruce Arthur joining us to talk about this day on a national level, the fact that Ontario decided not to acknowledge it as a holiday. What does that factor into where Ontario goes with Indigenous relations from this point on? And we'll talk about rapid testing in schools, how we're doing well, very well in terms of numbers in the pandemic, better than anybody potentially predicted. We'll get there with Bruce and Caroline Alfonso on that same issue of rapid tests and what she thinks the uptake will be for parents, 5 to 11-year-olds, when it comes to getting their kids vaccinated. All to come on Toronto Today. The day and its impact and its message and uh, and the action that we have to have come from the message. That's been probably our theme this morning. If there's been one beyond the obvious is that the Blue Jays will acknowledge today is a national day of truth and reconciliation today. The national anthem will be sung in uh, an indigenous language along with English and French. So three versions of the national anthem tonight for Blue Jays Yankees, for people attending. Um, and it's a start. Our next guest, we're very happy she's making time for us. Lori Campbell is an intergenerational survivor of the Indian residential school system. Her grandmother went to a residential school and she's the associate VP of indigenous engagement. Lori, thanks so much for making the time today. I appreciate it. I'm saying good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Does the day mean something to you in that so many people asked for a day? Uh, It's one of just a few steps, a few steps in uh, the concepts of truth and reconciliation that were uh, that were pushed forward by this particular federal government. Um, And and it was, you know, it, it fell upon deaf ears prior to it. Is it a good thing that we're moving this ball forward and we have today to have these important discussions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is, um, you know, positive that, uh, you know, it's, we're moving forward and having this particular day. And it is, you know, like you mentioned, it's a direct um, result of the TRC and the calls to action, right? Because it was, um, you know, asked that the federal government in collaboration with Indigenous peoples establish a statutory holiday, um, a National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And um, I guess, you know, uh, it would you know, the, the TRC came out in 2015, so, um, you know, we're seven years past that. Um, it wouldn't, uh, didn't seem like it should take so long to establish a national holiday, but, uh, you know, here we are, and uh, it, is, it is a positive step. And, and the struggle, too, I think a, a couple of guests that we've had on have, have put it so succinctly. It's that um, you can either, it, it, we're just, we have such mixed emotions about so many things uh, in 2021, and we're pleased that some progress has been made. But then when we think about, and we see especially news stories with, with video of communities where there's no fresh drinking water, communities with, you know, boarded up windows, it's incredibly problematic. It rips at us, but it's got to do more. We, we, we can't just change the channel and think, well, that's sad. We need to do things about it. Yeah. And, you know, and 
there's there's a, there's the truth and the reconciliation, right? And so part of it is about learning, but the other part is the action. And so sometimes I think people get confused, and I think if they just listen to an Indigenous person speak about their truth and their experience, they feel like they've done the work. And that's not actually the work. The work is the action that follows. So how are we putting pressure on, you know, on our leadership, municipal, provincial and federal, to actually respond to the calls to action and actually implement the action? That's the difficult part. And I think the other piece is, you know, um, as Indigenous people, you know, there's so many things that um, we've always known about in our communities because we've always heard, for example, the unmarked graves. We knew those were there and our families knew they were there because our old ones talked about it. And now that they're coming to light in the public and there's so many people in Canada acting surprised, mm-hmm. it also feels kind of like um, upsetting because Volume 4 of the TRC written in 2015 told everybody it was called the missing children and unmarked graves and so all this information is already there and so it feels kind of hurtful at times and and upsetting for indigenous peoples to uh realize that canada didn't care enough about the trc to actually read it i'm really glad you brought that up laurie because i wanted to ask if a day like this is i i I would say sometimes it's an over overused word but i'm not sure it is now if that is triggering to some because the argument could be made two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, we, we told you about this and and it either fell on deaf ears or it was just, you know, um, a, a footnote in a newscast. And now it's it's right in front of you. Now we're talking about it more. And now we're, you know, attempting to to deal with just mountains and oceans of of grief and sadness and anger um, that that it fell on deaf ears. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, and I would say there's definitely like probably a full spectrum, you know, there's lots of, um, we're all probably at different points in our healing and and, uh, and our wellness. And so, you know, there's, there's public events that are out there for people to attend and, and to learn. And then I, I'm hearing, you know, also smaller, you know, community gatherings where it will just be, you know, us having a potluck, doing our ceremony and prayer and taking care of one another. And so I think it's also important, you know, I've also heard from some peers about the demands coming at them for this particular day. And, you know, the, the poor planning of other Canadians is not the emergency of Indigenous peoples to, uh, you know, jump up and provide, you know, education and information about this state. Now, some of us are in, you know, specific educational roles and do take that on, but that's not everybody. And, uh, you know, we need to be kind, loving and compassionate and, and uh, respectful of, you know, Indigenous peoples that need their time today. Laura, yeah, I was just going to say that. Lori Campbell, intergenerational survivor of the Indian residential school system. Uh, your grandmother went to a residential school. Um, how well did you know your grandmother? What were those conversations like about um, her existence and, and what she had to endure? Right. So um, so this is, you know, people think the residential school, you know, was something that was just done in the past. And I think one of the things this day is to help us remember is that there's a, a legacy that is left because of that. So um, when I was born, I lived with my grandmother. Um, for about uh, one and a half years, and then I was scooped through the 60s scoop, right? And so I was taken away from my family, and it took me until I was 27 years old to find them again. And by then, my grandmother had died. Um, she had died a few years earlier, so I didn't get to meet her. And so, But I do know my birth mom and all my other family. And so uh, for me, it's really just the stories that I've heard. But the one, one of the stories that sticks with my mind is, is when I was adopted, I kept asking about where the woman with the scars was who would sing to me. And uh, my adoptive family, you know, just thought I made that up. And and as soon as Mm -hmm. I met my birth family, they're like, you know, your grandma, she had 
scars because she'd been in a fire. And then later on, I heard a story about like, oh, and we knew when she was in a good mood because she would always sing. And I'm like, okay, you know, there's there's that. And so um, I do have that memory deep inside me, but I do know the impact that it had on my mom's ability to parent um, and uh, my, you know, aunties and uncles and the struggles that they've had. Lori, when you go to that school as a little, how old were you as a little girl when you went? Uh, when my grandmother went to residential school? W- when you did, you mentioned the 60s scoop. Oh, the 60s scoop, yeah. So the 60s scoop, um, I was uh, 14 months old uh, when I was taken out of uh, my family home. Yeah. And I, and I wonder, you know, what that does when you sort of realize, you know, who you are and, and it, it is hard, it's just plain period hard enough to figure out who you are in those early formative years. Um, I, I just wonder the impact of of feeling, you know, how do I assimilate? How do I how do I be who I am when the goal of some people is clearly to not allow that, to not allow me to speak my own language, to not allow me to be with my own people and, and seek my own culture and heritage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so certainly, I mean, I knew I was Indigenous, um, and my adoptive family knew that and told me that, but they were also fi- following the guidance of social workers at the time who, you know, were, were telling families that, you know, your job is to, you know, just teach them to be white, essentially, you know, and, and help to civilize them, and and, uh, and they'll be better off. And so that's what, you know, many families did, and, and based on the advice of the professionals at the time, they thought they were doing the right thing. But I can tell you, as a kid growing up like that, um, the internal uh, identity crisis and, and harm and trauma and uh, struggles that I went through and in, in trying, you know, knowing in my head that, okay, well, I am Indigenous, but um, that's like really bad and horrible. And, and so I need to try and be white, but I can't mm-hmm. get rid of the Indigenous. And, you know, and so that, so I think that that's, you know, where things like self-harm and, and uh, you know, things like that come in because you, you just, you know, you can't get that out of you. And it's very, it's very confusing. It ends up being this vicious circle, it feels like to me, um, you know, looking at data and, and looking at how uh, it's very difficult to keep families together. Um, at, you know, a- anybody that's involved in a marriage knows that, you, you know, you're never going to be on the same page every hour of every single day of every single month of every single year. So I can only imagine when one person is going through reliving trauma or or just being, you know, incredibly skeptical or cynical about where it's all going. It takes the other person to pick them up. And it, it's really, really difficult sometimes. And it's why families fray and break apart, and and it's no no different than any of the community. But but the data tells us a lot. It's it's very pronounced in First Nations communities. Yeah, it is. You know, and through the TRC and the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, um, you know, it's been named that there was you know not just cultural genocide, but actually genocide on a people and. Um, it's really, you know, difficult for Canadians to wrap their head around that. But, um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, there's conflicting things that are going on. You know, um, like where was all that in the federal election? Where was all that information to be covered? And what's happened um, since we've identified that there's ongoing genocide still occurring against Indigenous peoples? And, um, you know, it seems to be uh, at times sort of a focal point to to. I don't know, gain some popularity, but then not so many concrete things done, right? The federal government names this day, yet they're still fighting um, in courts, which the federal court just upheld, uh, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that, uh, you know, ordered the federal government to pay compensation because of racism towards Indigenous children that uh, they were found guilty of. And and so there's this conflicting thing that's happening 
conflicting messaging. And I think that also makes it difficult for other people in Canada to really understand what's going on and, and what's the truth and what isn't. You hit on so many things that uh, it, it, that absolutely rankle me. And uh, and I, th- I thought about that. I thought about the court cases. I thought about the lack of uh, of, of prominent issues with residential schools. Like if, if we'd predicted this five months ago and said there's going to be a federal election coming up and we'd say, well, indigenous issues in residential schools, that, that'll be at the top of the topic list. I didn't see it. I, I didn't see it and I didn't hear it as much as I needed to. And I'm sure you would uh, you know you would say well yeah times 10 for me as well and then I think about yeah the cynicism and and the distrust I don't know how my producer and I were talking about how do we do sh- this show so I don't want it to look right I want it to feel right for us when we get off the air that we're not just doing this and I had I've made this a pledge to not just do this these kind of topics one day a year it's not it's not a one-day thing and I I struggle with the orange shirts and I struggle with the flagpoles and whatnot. And we, we should do them because it says we care, but we've got to take it all and turn it into action. And I've got to, I got to look in my own heart and figure out what are the things I'm actually going to do as opposed to just say, and we all have to. Right. Absolutely. You know, and, and you know, the, the, the federal government, the nation as a whole is a big ship, right? And, um, you know, and we need to stop thinking that that's going to drive uh, reconciliation and the response to the TRC and, and to think about our own individual actions, right? So folks that um, are able to have this day off, you know, I encourage them, if you haven't read the TRC calls to action, it's not a long read, just the calls to action, it's just a few pages, you know, read them. And read them with your partner. Um, you know, talk to them about talk to it with about them with your kids. And then mm-hmm. you know, you can pick one that kind of resonates with you, and like learn more about it and figure out how you can, um, you know, take a response to that action in you know your sphere of influence. And you know, um, but yeah, but the key to this, I think, and to the next step is actually that actionable part. Is we need people to take action on an individual, you know. Uh, community and, and uh, professional space. Lori Campbell, Associate Vice President of Indigenous Engagement. I wish we had forever. Um, thank you for doing this. You're a great guest. I hope you'll come on again. I hope we'll keep advancing these issues. It takes time. It, it, it This takes a deep commitment. This is not a one-day thing for people. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me on and, and uh, highlighting this. Really appreciate the time. Lori Campbell joining us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Bruce Arthur's our friend from the Toronto Star, columnist there. It's funny, you know, a day of truth and reconciliation, and uh, and people will, you know, say, oh, here's, you know, two white dudes talking about it. But, man, it our, our kids are all in school. And the biggest message I, I think about is my parents, who raised me in what I'd call a very liberal household, said to me, they're both school teachers, Bruce, and they said, we just missed this. We absolutely like we didn't we didn't miss much. And in fact, we may have overreacted to some things, but we missed this. We we went to the plate and, you know, three straight strikes down the middle. And, and we didn't spot that this was happening all around us in our country. One thing I feel good about, Greg, is that when my kids go to school now, and I'm sure you get the same experience with your kids, is they do learn more about it than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you talk about a national day for truth and reconciliation, I think at the very least, Canada is closer to truth, right? We know more about was what was done um, in residential schools. We know more about the long-term effects. There's there's more conversation and awareness, stuff that should have been there before because it was happening kind of under our noses in this country for generations. But I think there's something closer to a more real picture on a wider scale in the country. Reconciliation, I think, is a different thing. 
Um, it's it's something that's much harder. It's uh, it, it's going to require, and and I've talked to some people about this over the years. It's going to require reversing, again, generational trauma and damage on a nationwide scale, and that's just the whole nation is built towards the oppression and genocide of indigenous people. So to unpack that, to reconcile that, to fix it in any kind of public policy way is going to be a multi-generational lift, I think, because I don't see how any government is going to do anything other than incremental change. And even that would be an improvement. It's tricky, very, in this society because um, even, you know, people worry about being uh, used by governments and people worry about being uh, marginalized and being tokens. Look, this happens, you know, this happens in the sports business. This happens in, in certainly in the sports media business. Where are the people of color? Where are the women in, in our business? And then and then those people get hired and they're like, are they just doing this to uh, are they just doing this to make it a, a gesture or is this person qualified? So we go back and forth on these things. And I know we've played clips this morning from indigenous people going, is this day just about, you know, looking good? Is this day just about showing how much we care? And it's, it's that really fine line because you got it's got to lead to action. Well, that's the thing is it's probably better to have a day like this. Um, but if this is all there is, then is it? Probably not. Right. Mm. If, if, if Canada doesn't do anything other than a national day for truth and reconciliation, then Canada hasn't really moved very far ahead at all. Um, and you're right that this is similar to like the journalism business is primarily white. Uh, television, primarily white. Our government, primarily white. Because in Canada, established power systems have been built to benefit people who are white, right? Like that's that's been kind of the point of a lot of the enterprise in terms of how systems are built, designed, maintained, and so forth. Um, and so it's going to take time to kind of balance that. Um, and it it's something that like at the Toronto Star, we've talked as a union and we've, we've kind of communicated to ownership that we would like more diverse hiring as the paper attempts to hire and the papers indicated that they're interested in that and that they're responsive to that. But you can't just, you can't change everything. You just have to keep moving forward. Right. And one thing that I've talked about with some friends who were a little less receptive, I think um, to the idea of, of kind of, of a rebalancing of the existing power structure between white people and, and people of color. Um, and what I say is that there's going to be times when like, it, like it's like the idea of cancel culture or political correctness, there are going to be times when it goes too far, mm-hmm. right? Because it's part of a rebalancing of something that's been going the other direction again for, for decades, for generations, like this is going to be hard, but just, as long as society keeps kind of marching in the right direction, um, then it, with public policy, with attitudes and stuff like that, we've seen it with a lot of different issues. Um, then that's progress. Um, it's not, not going to go fast enough for probably anybody. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star, guest Toronto today. We'll, we'll get to the, the rapid testing issue from yesterday and what Dr. Kieran Moore said, but, but right there at, at the provincial government's feet is an opportunity, right? You got an opportunity for a premier who, who called out... Uh, in unfathomable fashion, Saul Mamakwa accusing him of jumping the line and getting his vaccine too early, early in the spring. Um, and you got an opportunity, like a layup to announce that it's a provincial, that the province will recognize a national holiday and they didn't do it. I, uh, 
again, there's 30 things. And so we pivot from here to there to there to there. And I'm going, boy, I don't even know if we spent enough time on that one because the provincial government was in absentia when this actually happened. Uh, I think in order to look like there's no you can't say that any federal party or provincial party that has ever held power has been truly transformational and progressive on indigenous rights and change. Right. You, you, you just no. can't say that. But some are. So you, I can see people saying, well, nobody's good. Some are, are worse than others. Right. Like the, the Ford government just introduced more indigenous uh, kind of focus in education programs. Right. This is stuff that they cut when they first took office. And now with an election pending, well, look what we're doing. And they still don't recognize this day. Again, it's it's an attempt to pretend like if you want to talk about pretending to care, which is something that Canada is pretty good at in a lot of different ways. Um, the provincial conservatives on this issue, the pretending to care, I guess, I guess it beats not pretending to care, but that's about all it beats. Sure, sure. And again, is this at the federal level too? Is that a big problem when when Carolyn Bennett, um, you know, writes pension question mark to Jody Wilson Raybould, and really there's no, you know, they're, they're outside of a of a, what looks like a scripted apology. There's nothing in terms of accountability. Yeah, that's a problem, and that gets people going. Man, if if they can't get it together, what am I supposed to do on my street? What am I supposed to do in my workplace? See, I read that remark as as something that was a little less openly indigenous hostile that just looked to me like kind of the craven politics of ottawa right like there's a lot of people in the in the, mm-hmm. in the government and who are kind of looking for the glory of a defined benefit pension there's just it's one of the rarest things in society i just thought that was someone who couldn't believe that someone would be would be acting in a sense that that was mm-hmm. more moral than political or selfish right mm-hmm. um but it, the, the jody wilson raybould was very kind of famously an indigenous minister who then was driven out by, I would say it's fair to say the Laurentian elite, right? Like mm-hmm. one of the, one of the ways I think that she was willing to walk away from that. I've talked to people over the years who had a, a little bit of connection to this. Um, her, her circle, her Jody Wilson Raybould's kind of existence was not built on trying to be part of the Laurentian elite by, by necessity, by, um, and so she was comfortable kind of standing on principle that's one thing that it's impossible to unpack one from the other because of the symbolism of her appointment and because this federal government, I mean, I do think this federal government has at least, and this is something you kind of have to say a little bit carefully, they've, they've tried on some issues, right? Yeah, they have. Yeah. Short on a lot, right? Like the idea of clean rink, drinking water on reserves across the country is something that they have made progress on, but not enough. And I think if you want to talk about this this government's record on Indigenous issues, that's probably about where you land. But again, there's a million different parts of it that are, you can look at any government in Canadian history and say, this is poor Indigenous policy, and this government's no different. Uh, this Every time I think parents in Ontario can't get any angrier uh, about education, I'm wrong. Um, and, and maybe, again, maybe it's prisoner of the moment stuff. It's like, you know, that's the best athlete I've ever seen. That's the best meal I've ever had. Well, four months ago, you had a better one. We're just moving pretty quickly here. But yesterday, people were unbelievably um, viscerally angry uh, about Ontario telling agencies that the rapid tests, these things that we have en masse stockpiled, are not for kids at school. They're not for sick kids. They're not for asymptomatic kids. 
They're for workplaces only. And parents, we've, we've had people on the show that have, have had started their own testing programs, almost like vaccine hunters. Imagine if the province had shut down vaccine hunters, how many more people would have been on the hunt for weeks and much longer? It would have cost lives and it would have cost hospital stays. What's the reaction to this? Uh, I know a lot of parents who are trying to get their hands on those rapid tests. I know at least one family where the mom is immunocompromised. And I believe she did actually get them just before the deadline. The problem you have with this, like, so rapid tests are not perfect. And the argument over them has happened since they arrived in the province of almost a year ago. There's been scientific arguments between different parts of the scientific community over how best to use them. And it's been paralysis. And one thing that Peter Uni told me, that scientific director of the science table, is now with Delta, it used to be that it could be about a 50%. It could have been a coin flip accuracy with rapid tests early on with some of them. Now, because Delta's viral load is so much higher, this will help. And so if you're curing more, and you, one thing that was interesting watching him yesterday, mm-hmm. the province clearly chose businesses over schools, right? Absolutely 100%. That's what happened. There are thousands, hundreds of thousands of rapid tests being shoveled to businesses through chambers of commerce. And none of them were going to schools. Now, tell me exactly what the difference is. If you're talking about it as a screen, as surveillance testing, in terms of it not being perfect, it's still being used as an engine to keep the economy going rather than our schools. And so Kieran Moore seemed to indicate there will be deployment of rapid tests in schools, not of every kid, not three times a week. But whenever there's an outbreak, you can then test everyone else in the class and they can maybe stay in class. They better come through with something because parents are furious because what you get, the reason that parents are doing this, Mm. because there's such a lack of support from the province to test their kids. So we've never done surveillance testing in classes. Never. The only times it's ever happened is when individuals have pushed it like Jenny McCready and Michael Guerin did that with Thorncliffe. Like this is a government that leaves you quite often to fend for yourselves. So you get vaccine hunters, you get the vaccine passport website, which tries to make the vaccine passport an Apple wallet issue. And you get parents trying to find tests anywhere they can. And there are, listen, there are calm parents that think their kid will be fine. Their kid will have a good outcome. Their kid are healthy. But but that's not who we should be focusing on right now. And it's almost Trump-esque, and I rankled comparing anyone or anything to Donald Trump, but when he said at one of those rallies last fall, hey, so I told everybody, slow down the testing, that wasn't lost on people last year in the fall when people said, well, are we testing enough? And and people are thinking, they're not testing because they don't want the results. And even though we're in a heavily vaccinated, walled up spot, and we're in a great, a better place, put it this way, than we may have forecast, certainly than the science table forecast, certainly we are, they may still not want those those positive tests. They mil- they may still not want them, given that that, uh, that 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 they're not putting them in schools. I've always thought from the beginning with, that with schools, the overriding thing is that we didn't want to know. Yeah, and if and and you know what, if you had a societal and governmental focus on keeping kids in schools as your number one priority of not letting down that generation, there's data that shows the kids who who have experienced short school strikes have long-term impacts in their life in terms of stuff like depression, employment, lots of other long-term, like stuff that I didn't know about before I started looking into the pandemic. If we had done that, if we, then you could argue, okay, we're not going to test so much in schools, but we're going to make sure we control the virus everywhere else. But Ontario's never done that. 
right? Ontario has always chosen business over schools. It has always chosen uh, the economy and some kind of hellish limbo in between controlling the virus and not. So what you've gotten is you've gotten more school closures than anywhere else in the country. What you've gotten is you've gotten these rolling lockdowns up until the fourth wave Mm -hmm. where there were just enough restrictions to make your life inconvenient and not enough to slow the virus to any significant degree. And so that's kind of where we are. The fact that Ontario is doing as well as it is, is a delight. It's wonderful. And I don't think you can find a single reputable scientist who predicted this. And that's what's fascinating about it is that it wasn't Mm -hmm. just a science table. No one thought we were going to do this well. The fact that we are is probably a combination of a ton of factors, but thank goodness the place that we need to worry about it, though, is probably schools. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the last bastion of uh, of where the unvaccinated gather every day. It's just that's that that's where it's at. I got to leave it there, Bruce. Loved having you on, man. Have a good weekend. Brady, have a good weekend, buddy. Uh, Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. We talked about that pathway for information earlier um, that actually people who you know listen to modern music can get into and that's raised so much in terms of what we weren't getting in school we'd look to art right we'd look to get the great actor graham green who's in kevin costner's dance over the wolves he dedicated himself to that as uh as a canadian and as someone that was in that you know iconic movie i remember it's weird that movie is never on television anymore i don't think i've seen dance of the wolves until maybe a year after it was released but graham green's art i know really well i mentioned gore downey stepping out from the tragically hip knowing that you know it's not going to play to the same audience but but it filters down and we talked about all the great artists uh in uh music whether it's uh native canadian robbie robertson tom cochran uh, Brian Adams, Neil Young, spreading messages out like Gore Downey. Gore Downey was such a champion for a cause like this. And beyond the obvious statement is it's such a shame that he's not here to see this happen because he called for it. And I think he would have been really vocal also about calling out some of the delays. And to be honest, some of the inaction and some of the hypocrisy of not getting to this place much, much earlier. But we're here now and we've got to do something about it. We've got to do something about it. That's just more than talk. And as we said, more than T-shirts and more than flagpoles. We need it, but hopefully it pushes us to the next step. And that's action. I want to bring on Stephanie Scott, uh, the executive director for the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Stephanie, thank you very much for getting up early for our listeners, making the time for us. Absolutely. Good morning. When I lay all that out there, I know you're on hold, able to listen. Um, does that does that resonate with you that we've been talking all morning and it's a talk show? So you, you're you're using words. Words matter. Actions matter more. You got to take something, take a message, but then put it into substantive action and, and change some things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, the very first day, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, it's a moment to reflect on the harms inflicted by colonialism in residential schools that were for, as you know, a very long time out of sight and out of mind. Um, this day should be set aside to honor all the children who survived residential schools as well as those that did not return. Um, <clears throat> it's important that people right across Canada use this day, you know, to, to connect with the community, to go to events, to seek out Indigenous authors, to watch documentaries. There's all kinds of films by Canadians, Indigenous and non, that share the true history of residential schools and what has happened. Um, I just returned from Kamloops in the West Coast mm-hmm. where the children were found and I can tell you that since that's happened, uh, we were doing some filming for a special that's taking place tonight 
And I was on set for about eight hours. And I can tell you, every five, ten minutes, there were still cars coming. You know, there was a lot of tears shed. People were coming, checking out the memorial, uh, leaving memorial objects. But they were, it showed me that people cared. People are starting to understand. So you have to take that action, as you noted, and learn. And that's the really first step to, to reconciliation and understanding. Stephanie Scott is joining us. She's the executive director for the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation here on September 30th, our first national holiday, uh, honoring the lives of Indigenous people across the country and those we have lost and those that have survived, as you note. You, you were in a ceremony um, I, I'm seeing last night in Gatineau, Quebec, two years ago, you unveiled a uh, a cloth, a ceremonial cloth, with the names of almost 3,000 kids who died. So that's two calendar years ago. Um, so you're in on the ground floor on this. Many Canadians just felt shock and alarm this spring and this summer with these discoveries. What, you know, why, why did it take that long for it just to hammer it home to, to many of us? Yeah, so since the close of the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the NCTR has continued to do work to find those children. Right now we have 4,126 little ones' names on that national register. I think that the real understanding of finding 215 and then more, there are thousands noted just over the last few months that it connected I think when we're talking about children, people can no longer ignore that. And it, it was a really, um, it was an awakening to me. I can tell you over the last months and years since the close of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, progress has been very slow, but I absolutely see it moving forward. We used to have to do so much outreach and we will continue to do that, but the landscape has changed. People are reaching out to us, calling us asking us what can they do, how can I help, and we direct people to our website, nctr.ca, because we have hundreds of resources available, more for Mm. educators, general public. Um, We've just started our research unit. We're continuing to do the work to find even more missing children across this country. Uh, does that create more a potential for a bridge to, you know, an understanding, I suppose, is the best way I can put it. And a level of trust uh, is truly the best way I can put it. And I ask about the level of trust because, uh, you know, and I know we played a clip from a residential school survivor who looks at today and and he wants to make sure that that, you know, indigenous people aren't being used here and they're not being exploited here. And and those are important discussions to have because because, you know, you, you're not going to get 100 percent people agreeing on anything in 2021. We know that. So it's important to listen to those people also and try and make it substantive that we're going somewhere with this. Yes. Um, Back during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I was also the manager of statement gathering. And I don't think that Indigenous people are being used because no matter where I went in the country, didn't matter which region or territory, all of the survivors that I spoke with, and we spoke with thousands of them, you know, they really wanted their experience, their life history, their oral histories to be shared. Because how do you learn? We wanted to bring people together to connect and understand so that we all know the truth before we even move to, towards reconciliation. So we still have decades of work to go. It's not going to be easy, but, you know, the time is definitely now. Stephanie Scott's joining us, National Center for Truth and Reconciliation Executive Director. Um, when we talk about assimilation, uh, how, 
what are the things we can do to advance that? Does that take everybody in on the ground floor to understand? I figure if I moved and and was assimilated into another culture, I'd still want to maintain so much of who I am. But, you know, there's also a understanding of of I I don't want to run into a language barrier. I don't want to run into a culture barrier. You you drop me in the middle of, say, Tokyo, Japan, there's an adjustment factor and I could feel really isolated. And and when I listen sometimes to indigenous people, Stephanie, they say that about going to schools that are mostly white or living on streets that are mostly uh, mixed race. How do how do we get it to a better place where everybody feels more comfortable? Yeah, well, I'm a brown-skinned Indigenous woman living here in, in Canada. I live in Winnipeg, you know, which was, has been called one of the most racist cities in this country. And what I think is important, where I do see changing, is people can hire people. People can sit with people. People mm-hmm. can engage the community. People can go out to the events. Today, there are so many events happening right across the country, here on Parliament Hill. So people are gathering and people are paying respects. You know, it's interesting when you reach out to somebody, what the response you'll get. And I don't think that people are are always going to be tired of educating, but it's time because how are we going to change if we don't come together? And I can let you know also that we are hosting a a national broadcast on television tonight in partnership with CBC and APTN. Mm -hmm. And that's a step, too, that people can do. So, you know, it may be less intimidating for somebody that may not want to know what to do watch the programming and the message coming from that from communities right across the country that are within the show itself they wanted to educate canadians and they wanted to show that we're still here we weren't 100 percent assimilated we hold our language we hold our culture we hold our songs and we'll be here forever and we're powerful and despite this horrific tragedy that continues to happen you know we want to break bread and we want to make change in this country so we can all live together and move forward because nobody's going anywhere no no one is i'm so glad you said that 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 that's that's a positive message and and again it sounds like the younger the person the more adamant they believe in that and and the more um they you know for lack of a better phrase stand their ground and say i'm i'm proud to be canadian i'm proud to be here but and, and i'm proud to to fit in, but I'm I'm still going to be me. I'm going to be who I am, how I was raised in my house, and and the culture I was raised in, and the language I was raised to speak. Um, you won't take that from me, and I think that's critically important. Anybody would say that, right? Yeah, and and I think what's important to note is that we are losing survivors, those children that attended residential school every day. You know, this is a day to reflect on that, and it helps recognize their voices. You know, well, they can still relay their experience themselves and and continue to bring remembrance into the public consciousness. And that's really what's important. I mean, you're going to hear a lot of information today relayed, a lot of life experiences. You'll hear, you know, you'll see tears and witness tears. And I don't doubt that other Canadians outside the Indigenous community will also, you know, come together to commemorate, memorialize and even celebrate the community. Stephanie, the job you do is just so important, so critically involved, uh, and and allowing us uh, time with you today really matters to us, uh, and I think it mattered to our listeners, too. Thanks for doing that for us. Be well. Thank you so much. Stephanie Scott from the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, the Executive Director. We will be able to reflect on the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. It's a different show. It's a different feeling. It got me thinking about, well... Um, to be honest, Gord Downey. And there's a person who's an iconic figure, and we've got so many good ones 
throughout Canada. So one thing about our artists, and you know, I'm a I'm a music guy. I'm, I suppose I'm a, a rock guy, and uh, and we have so many artists that have have put causes and put really you know their money where their mouth is, their time where their mouth is. You can't buy time. We've realized that in the last 18, 19 months. What's more valuable than it? Sometimes you've got too much of it. Sometimes these last couple of weeks have been like that for me. You're running around like a maniac and you're not sure you're good at anything. And you're not sure you're paying the proper attention to anything. Um, circumstances can bring you upon that sometimes. But I think about, you know, um, an artist I, I've been lucky enough to get to know, Tom Cochran. I think about Neil Young. I think about Joni Mitchell. And I think about artists like Gord Downey, who, what a tremendous loss to our, not just our music industry, but um, Canada, period. We all remember how that felt in 2016. He's got inoperable brain cancer. He's going to tour the country one last time uh, with his iconic band. And you remember what it was like to try and get tickets for that show. Bonkers times 100. Uh, lots of controversy about it. And he passes away at age 53. But he put out a solo album later that year in 2017 called Secret Path. We didn't know that. We didn't know what he'd been working on. He put out four solo albums before that. And to be honest, when he passed away, the hip had put out a new album. They'd made their way across the country. I'll never forget watching CBC picks up their final concert in Kingston and, uh, and, and shows it the night of um, the Olympics are happening in Rio. And Ron McLean's anchoring that particular, uh, makes the throw to that particular concert. And it is heavy and it is emotional. And I thought about it all day the next day. You know, sometimes something hits you so much in, um, in a good way that you just kind of sit around paralyzed. You, you move maybe, you know, if you got a Fitbit, you move about 400 steps in, in eight hours. That Sunday felt like one of those days to me. And he called out, not in a negative way, in the crowd that night, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And he said, this is the man, truth and reconciliation. He's going to get things done that haven't been done before. And as many things and, and you know, as, as much as has been documented how there's way more to do and there's been loose ends that haven't gotten tied up properly. And there's been, you know, to be honest, things that make us all physically seethe with anger, like the lack of clean drinking water, like, you know, lawsuits, one of which was settled yesterday by the Canadian Supreme Court that I'll get to in a bit when it came to, quote unquote, and this is what the opposition says, but the, the government doesn't put up much resistance, fighting indigenous kids in court. Sounds pretty graphic, but I, that is one way to describe it. Absolutely it is. But he got this day done. The urgency for this day was important, and it had been there for quite a while. But where does it lead us to? Is it a just a day? Is it just a day off to some people? And I can't tell you, I can't tell you even tangibly what I plan to do to make this work. We can tell stories. Um, we can talk about what we hope to accomplish. And again, tangible things, tangible things that we can try and accomplish when it comes to truth and reconciliation. I get a text in. What about accountability and justice? You're damn straight. You're damn straight. We need to look for people who committed criminal acts of atrocity at these schools. We need to do that. We need to look for people who knew about the criminal acts of atrocity at these schools and did nothing about it. No one would ever make the case that 
not not doing something that you know about is the same as actually doing them. No one would do that. No one would say that. There's a lot of you need context and you need specifics for those those scenarios. Remember that the word accomplice is an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, You can be an accomplice to something in uh, in a court and be charged. But if you didn't hatch the idea and you didn't do it and you didn't perpetuate it, but you knew of it, it's not great, but it's also not the act themselves. And those are the people we really need to look for. So your every opinion's welcome on this show. You know that this isn't about you know you know shaving off thirty percent of uh, of you know a political side and saying you don't have a voice here. You don't count. So if you if you yeah this person writes truth and reconciliation what a crock of crap how about accountability and justice? They still hunt Nazis that are a hundred years old but they're not looking for these criminals who could be as young as fifty five or sixty age wise. You're not in the you're not in the wrong stratosphere. Fifty five might be a little young, and especially in Ontario, with where residential residential schools ended about forty years ago, forty five years ago, the ones that did exist, and we had very few in Ontario in comparison. But more needs to get done, and it's got to be again. Are we acting or are we talking? Are we acting or are we just saying things that sound great? It's going to be a big, big test of us. Because we know what's out there and we know that the second you log on to, yes, heaven forbid, the cesspool, the, the, the Twitter can sometimes be, uh, it just looks, it looks like it's a lot of people who care. A lot of orange signs and windows, a lot of orange t-shirts going to school today, and they should, because at least it's a start. But where does the start lead? Why is there not clean drinking water for every single Canadian? And why can't we furnish these communities? We can grab hundreds of millions of dollars to let us stay at home and order takeout and play board games and not go back to work and not be back in the office and not see other people's faces. We can print money ad nauseum to do that. You turn the tap on. Taking a bath, washing your face, getting a drink after a run or, or after playing outside with your kids or after, you know, scrubbing a floor. That water should be clean. It's plain and simple. It's Canada. Okay. Like, let's not let's not set a, an average standard for who we are. I said it earlier. This isn't about making you feel bad about who you are and who your parents were and who your grandparents are. But let's fix this. Okay. I love getting down and fixing something. Stuff lingers, and I'm like, ugh. And uh, and we've all done that, okay? Some people do it more than others, but it can get habitual. And this issue has to get resolved. I bring up Gord Downey, and I mention writing Secret Path, which chronicles the life and death of Cheney Wenjack. That's a First Nations boy. It's a true story who fled a residential school, got out, escaped from one in Northern Ontario in 1966. I'm not born then. Maybe you weren't either. So what could we do? It was not like, but he dies of hunger and exposure to cold weather while trying to find his way home. So it's a concept album. Like the hip are, uh, this it's not little bones, right? It's not nautical disaster. It's not, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not blow it high dough. Serious business here. And what Gore Downey tried to do, I'll read the quote from Grand Chief Alvin Fiddler, 
the Secret Path Cheney-Wenjack Fund Project. Gord, quote, Gord restored the dignity and innocence of a little boy who only wanted to go home. And we have been humbled by his determination to share the story of Cheney and all of our youth who never made it home. I saw a story yesterday of a woman who said they knocked on the door. Somebody from uh, somebody from the government, uh, from, you know, basically Indian affairs, as it was called then. Catholic priest. And uh, and and somebody else in the community. And they said, have you got kids here? And parents says two little girls. We're taking them. We're taking them away to school. That's that. Like today, pack now. We're not coming back in a week. We're not coming back on Tuesday. It's happening now. They're getting in this car or this Jeep with us, and they're going to school. And yes, you know what the concept was. Get the native out of the native. Get that native out. Cut the hair. Dress them up. Make them all look the same. Look, private schools end up doing that anyway. I went to private school for a year. Everybody looks the same clothing-wise. But that's not what this was. That's not what this was. And imagine escaping. Imagine the story Gord Downey tells. Hometown hero in Kingston. National rock icon. And he thinks in his dying days... I got to get this album out there. Tell this story of a boy who wanted out, who didn't want to be in this school. He's getting abused, feared for his safety, watched friends get it worse than he got it. Didn't feel like he had any friends many nights when he went to bed. It's unbelievable what we did and what we didn't do specifically. That's, I hope, what some of what we'll get to today. It's a heartbreaking legacy to lose a voice like that. And again, so many voices have written great songs. I was looking it up last night. We've got so many musical treasures that tried to say more things about this. And either we didn't hear it or politicians didn't hear it. But the Robbie Robertson's right native, you know, native Canadian uh, the Robbie Robertson was is um, Tom Cochran, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Brian Adams. They all tried to say things. Now, they can have their pop songs once in a while, right? We can have our life as a highway and cuts like a knife. But when they say something important, do we just pass it off and, and not send it up the chain of command? Not send it up to politicians? Did you hear enough about residential schools and indigenous affairs in this recent election campaign? I sure didn't. I know we're juggling a lot. I know there's a lot going on. It is hard to put one foot in front of the other some mornings. But we've let this go way, way, way too long. Way too long. We'll talk about rapid tests. We'll talk about extracurriculars, vaccinations. Uh, not many people better to do it with than education reporter for the Globe and Mail. Uh, she worked on this big story about rapid tests yesterday with the always excellent as well, Laura Stone. She is Caroline Alfonso. It is great to have you back on the show. Thanks very much for making the time. Hey, Greg. Nice to be here. It's it's one of those things as well. We were talking in our household. I know my wife and and uh, you are, are we're colleagues. We're saying, boy, and and we had so many calls and texts this morning from people saying, not only did our parents miss the boat on this, our schools missed the boat on residential schools. I hope, and I said this, I don't know why this would be isolated to the social sciences. I hope every teacher is sort of prepared. Take ten minutes, take some questions, give some thoughts on uh, on what today is, why they're in school, and and why it's important to to have this sense of where we're going to go next with these issues. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, we sent our kids off 
wearing orange shirts this morning and you know we tried to explain to them what the reason was behind that and hopefully that's sort of um that's 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 told to kids or taught to kids in classrooms this morning as well, because we have young ones, right, who don't necessarily understand, but hopefully it um, it's taught to them. And, you know, the minister announced yesterday that it's going to be part of the grades one to three curriculum um, where kids are taught about resident, not res- particular mm-hmm. resident, but indi- indigenous issues. So um, that should be rolled out, too. And I wonder, like, you know, you are very connected to parents and I'm sure you hear from many. Um, I I wonder if most parents think that's still okay. Of course, there's debate about, you know, when do we get into, you know, educating kids about sex? When do we get about substances, about things that are sort of how we navigate our our existence? Not that all those are bad things. I didn't say that they were. But for grade one to three here, I think, you know, I hope parents are, are down with the idea that it's never too early. This is education. It's part of your history, and it's part of of things, obviously, that we can reflect on. Even though we're proud Canadians, we can look back on and say, this was terrible. This was a bad part of our past. I, I think, you know, uh, a lot of people are shocked when we talk about the fact that kids are learning about sex ed in early grades, for example, and you raise that good mm-hmm. point. Like, people get shocked by it, but when you actually look at the material and what they are taught about, it's actually quite relevant to their age, you know? Mm-hmm. In the early grades, they're taught about how to correctly name body parts. How is that a bad thing, right? And so it is you know, educators do make it relevant to that age group so that they can understand it. And I think once you, once a parent who is perhaps not, not opposed is not the right word, but who's not fully accepted what, what is being taught, once you actually understand that it is actually quite relevant to that age group and it is, mm-hmm. it is built for that age group, then I think you would be more accepting of what is being taught in those classrooms. Caroline Alfonso, kind of to join us, Globe Mail on Toronto Today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, this story you worked on with Laura yesterday, uh, it has parents, I said it to Bruce Arthur an hour ago, every time I think parents are at their wits end, the, the the water's calm a little bit. We think we're we're in a good place, and then the blood pressure rises. There were parents utilizing grassroots programs. There were public school parents incensed that private school children uh, and educators were getting rapid tests that they didn't have access to. And then the Ontario government yesterday says, "Stop giving tests to families and parents. These are for mm-hmm. businesses only." Wow, um, the reaction was was visceral in the last twenty four to thirty six hours, and you and Laura documented that. Yeah, I mean, Greg, you know, there were, so parents, I mean, I have children in in school, you have children in school, parents are looking for any sort of means to keep them safe and, you know, to keep classrooms open for as long as possible. Because if you remember, Ontario is the only province that had uh, classrooms close to in-person learning longer than any other province uh, in this country, right? So parents are like, we don't want to go back to what it was last year. What can we do? What additional measures that we, can we put in place? And so this rapid antigen test was one thing that they wanted to do. And so parents in, you know, Ottawa, Guelph, Toronto, parent groups had decided to come together and it was on a volunteer basis whoever wanted in their in their family of schools whoever wanted to participate could participate and they had twice a week rapid tests some were some were already on the ground a couple of weeks in some were about to get started and then uh just like that i mean it just ended and it has ended and parents are baffled by it they're confused by it they're frustrated they're angry all those emotions because something like that 
takes a lot of work to put together. It's not sort of like you just email a bunch of parents. You have to go pick up the tests. You got to put the mm. tests together. You got to distribute the tests, and it's gone. It's amazing. And and I want to ask you about extracurriculars. You wrote about that uh, and and the fierce arguments mm-hmm. that that transpired there. And um, you know, our household is fully vaccinated. People say, "Well, you're lucky," and you're like, "Well, yeah." But as parents, you look at the big picture and you say. Well, we're lucky that they're vaccinated, but we're unlucky in that, you know, one of them will go to college in three years. And and that runway of kids being kids is sort of running out. So we want them doing as much as possible with their friends. We want dances. We want cross-country meets. We want all that stuff. It's um, I, I find that's a big distinction. And uh, and I know it was really a lot, you know, really dividing the, the community of Toronto and the TDSB when Dr. Davila said, well, we're going to put a pause on these things two days into school, especially for fully vaccinated high school kids not to be able to yeah, play after definitely. school. Crazy. They've been definitely. doing it all summer. Definitely. I mean, that's the that's the whole equity issue, right? There have been sports that have come back outside of school over the summer months. Mm-hmm. And so, why not in school? Why not? That, you know, people who can afford it have been doing it outside of school. Well, not everybody can afford it. So why not bring it back in school? And so there is a gradual reentry. I think, you know, football practices and things like that have been starting up. Um, and teens want it. They really want it. They have been missing out on it for a year now. Interesting, Greg, that Thames Valley School Board in London, Ontario, mm. is, is uh, alone in it where it requires kids to be vaccinated in order to participate in extracurriculars. Um, That's a distinction Mm -hmm. that I haven't seen among other boys in, in Ontario. Vaccine uptake for five to 11 year olds. I got about 45 seconds when they come. And and again, that's a little bit of advancement from, uh, you know, from Dr. Davila because they may still be several weeks away. Maybe it's even Christmas. We don't know, but what do you think the uptake will be like? Cause it's still only about 50 to 55%, 12 plus 12 to 17 are vaccinated. Do you think it'll be even a lower number for five to 11? I, I know I, I anecdotally, I know you won't hesitate with your kids. I won't. I will not. My kids are actually quite ready to, especially my eldest. But, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing anecdotally from parents is that they're not vaccine hesitant themselves. They went out and got the vaccine as quickly as it was available to them. But when it comes to their kids, parents are a little bit more anxious, I would say, mm-hmm. around vaccines. So I, I, I don't know how it's going to go. Um, I have two different camps. I have parents that are ready to go just like me. And there's others that are sort of like, let's just see what the what the doctors say, what the scientists say before we proceed. Caroline, loved, uh, loved having you on today. And uh, your work is uh, Im- unimpeachable and impeccable. I almost said unimpeccable. <laughs> And you're like, why are you insulting me? I just gave you nine minutes of my time. Have a great morning. uh, And thank you very much for the time. Thanks, Greg. (laughs) Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We're back live on the air tomorrow to finish out the week between 530 and 9 on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. We'd love to have you join us. If not, obviously, you found us here. Feel free to subscribe and send out to your friends and rate the podcast as well. Uh, on Apple, on Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again for listening.